0: Please pray with me. Jesus, we ask you to be with us uh, this morning. You promised that when two or three are gathered in your name, there you are in the midst. And we ask that you would be with us uh, to open our hearts to this word that you preached first and you taught, a word that changed the world, Lord. Please would it change our hearts this morning and enrich us and bring us closer to you. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so uh, this week I got a letter in the mail from my mortgage lender. <coughs> It said, uh, we have reviewed the status of your mortgage. You qualify for some great benefits. A reduced monthly payment, $10,000 cash in hand. Call this toll-free number and talk to one of our representatives. So I did. (laughs) Uh, Yes, I was hooked by the letter. I called the toll-free number and I got a nice man called John. And he explained what the letter was talking about, which turned out to be, surprise, surprise, a refi. My bank was offering to refinance my mortgage and give me one or more of those immediate benefits but the letter never mentioned the fact that this deal came with a whole bunch of costs like restarting the clock on my 30-year payment plan and incurring a whole new round of fees to the bank. So it was a promise of cash in hand now but it came with a big payback later. Friends, you don't get anything for nothing. (laughs) And if someone's promising you big rewards, you need to keep digging until you find out what it's all going to cost you. And I'm not saying that refinancing your mortgage is always a scam and never a good idea. I haven't actually decided whether I'm going to do it yet. Um, I'm sure you can all all give me your sound financial advice after the service. But one thing's for sure, I would be a fool to make that kind of decision without counting the cost. And today, in the next section of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus raises that same question when it comes to the subject of earthly treasure. That includes all forms of wealth, like bank accounts and real estate, investment portfolios, art, cryptocurrency, NFTs, all the rest of it. Earthly treasure. It looks pretty nice, doesn't it? We all want it, at least a little bit of it. Uh, Some of us are old enough to remember that cartoon of uh, Scrooge McDuck, where he dives off his diving board and swims in his huge pile of gold coins. And when you see that image, it really sticks with you. Old Scrooge looks pretty happy in his pile of wealth. Or we might look further back to the tycoons of the Gilded Age, like Vanderbilt and Rockefeller and J.P. Morgan, the richest men who ever lived. And they built vast palaces for themselves all over the country, and lived lives that dripped with luxury. And that all looks pretty good, right? Pretty desirable. We want that. We think we'd enjoy that kind of life if only we could get it. But Jesus wants to ask us today, have you considered what that costs? Have you considered what Vanderbilt and Rockefeller didn't have because they chose treasure on earth? Let's factor in what it costs before we decide whether we really want it. So then, we'll ask Jesus, what does earthly treasure cost? And he has three answers in Matthew chapter 6. Let's turn there together now so we can see this. Matthew chapter 6, page 811, 811 of the church Bibles. And we're in Matthew chapter 6, starting at verse 19. What does earthly treasure Costs us here jesus lists three main costs and they're big ones first verse 19 it costs us treasure in heaven second verse 22 it costs us the sight of our eyes and third verse 24 it costs us the right to serve god so let's go through these costs one by one and see how expensive they turn out to be first treasure on earth costs us treasure in heaven you can see that right In verses 19 through 21, Jesus gives two alternatives that are mutually exclusive. There's no middle ground between them. Option one, verse 19, lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Or option two, verse 20, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. There's no dividing up your treasure and putting half in each place. Because verse 21 says where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And our hearts can't be in two places at once any more than our bodies can be in two places at once. So our hearts are either on earth or in heaven. They're located in exactly the same place as our real treasure is located, which is either on earth or in heaven, one or the other, never both. So the conclusion is that truly accumulating treasures for ourselves on earth costs us treasure in heaven. And we should seriously weigh the gravity of that cost. Is it worth it? Because it would be very nice to live in the Biltmore House up in North Carolina, the 250-room palace that George Vanderbilt designed for himself. And it's 8,000 acres of exquisitely landscaped grounds. I've been there twice. I took the architectural tour. i really love it if that was my home. It's beautiful. But when I visited the Biltmore House both times, you know who wasn't there? George Vanderbilt. Because he's dead. And none of that splendor belongs to him anymore, does it? Rusted, stolen, and moth-eaten, his account balance now stands at zero. Heavenly treasure, zero. So from our perspective, does it seem to you like he made a very wise trade? Does it seem like maybe he jumped a little too quickly on the refi deal without counting the cost? without fully weighing up that there was a much better deal on the table for him. Because within the binary choice that Jesus puts before us in these verses, it's really rather a glorious invitation, isn't it? Did you even know that you had the opportunity to store up an eternal treasure in heaven? A set of assets that were invulnerable to burglary or tarnish or the collapse of your whole nation's economy? Did you even know that that was a possibility? Quite a few Russian oligarchs have discovered this month that their assets are a whole lot less invulnerable than they ever dared to dream. And if their bank wasn't safe, is any bank safe? Jesus says, yes, just one. Only the bank of heaven is safe. Invest with me, he says, and that's the only way you're going to keep it. All this should sober us to be cautious about where we invest our treasure. And we should want to understand from Jesus clearly what then is the attitude toward earthly treasure that robs us of heavenly treasure. Because of course none of us can completely avoid having earthly treasure. We need at least a little bit of it to live. I hope that you have with you this morning a wallet or a purse and inside of it are some bills or a bank card. You can't live without that. The word of God does not say don't own anything. It's not against private property. It's not against saving for the future. In fact, it praises that as wisdom in both the Old and New Testaments. And the Word of God is not against people enjoying the good things of the earth. Paul says that everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. So all that means that there's nothing wrong with gold in and of itself. God made gold. And there's nothing wrong with having it and even having a lot of it. The problem comes then when we set our hearts on it. We read that in Psalm 62, verse 10. It says, if riches increase, set not your heart upon them. And here Jesus chooses his words very carefully when he commands, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. When we pay attention to each word, we see that he's describing the deliberate accumulation of earthly goods for no other person than myself and for no other purpose than just to have them. It's the storing up that's the problem. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. <clears throat> because that kind of storing up is the sin of greed. That's the precise definition of greed. The endless gathering and saving for myself. And greed in scripture is a big problem. Greed reveals the true love of our hearts. Paul says in Colossians 3 verse 5, greed which is idolatry. So the mistake, that mistake uh, is going to end up costing us All heavenly treasure. So Jesus says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, but instead store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. He uses the same language in both halves of that verse. So take that passion of the greedy Scrooge for his gold and apply that to heavenly treasure. Get as much of it as you can and hold on to it as hard as you can. Um, So let's understand what Jesus means by heavenly treasure. In all likelihood, it's not the same stuff that makes up earthly treasure. It's not in gold and precious stones because in heaven those things litter the floor. It's not in fine art or sculpture because they're uglier than the trash cans in heaven. Um, And it's not in fine clothes or luxury items because in heaven we'll have bodies that lack the capacity even to be uncomfortable. So what we consider treasure here on earth is heaven's trash. Instead, Jesus is talking about the currencies that have actual eternal value in heaven. And those are the currencies of things like love and joy and peace. We heard from Paul earlier in Colossians 3 verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, and so on. When I really think this command isn't just a way for us to earn heaven's treasure. No, this stuff actually is heaven's treasure. It's the stuff itself. In God's economy, these are the things that are truly precious. The things that are rewarded with high honor. So want them, seize them, hold on to them, and guard them, says Jesus. That's the first point. Chasing earthly treasure costs us treasure in heaven. But that's only the beginning. That's already quite a high cost, but we're only a third of the way there. Second verse 22, it also costs us the sight of our eyes. Jesus said, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. And uh, the, ch- the children helped us earlier explaining what this means, but i uh, give you a bit more of the background so you can see this clearly for yourselves. Um, when Jesus said this, he was drawing on quite a broad rabbinic teaching from the Talmud uh, that would have been widely known to his audience at the time. <clears throat> and in particular, this idiom that a generous person was said to have a good eye, while a greedy person was said to have a bad eye. And as I showed with the children, this comes straight out of the Old Testament, but we're also going to listen to what the rabbi said about it. So first, uh, Rabbi Yehoshua ben Levi. Uh, said this in the Talmud, one may give a cup of blessing to recite the blessing of grace after meals only to someone with a good eye, a generous person. As it is stated in Proverbs 22, one who has a good eye will be blessed for he gives his bread to the poor. Then on the other hand, the wicked prophet Balaam in Numbers 24 had an evil eye because the scripture says that he lifted up his eyes against Israel. And Rashi, the French rabbi who commented on the Talmud, wrote, this describes the evil eye of pride and greed. Finally, Pirkei evoked the sayings of the Jewish fathers, puts it this way, in whomsoever are three things, he is a disciple of Abraham, and three other things, a disciple of Balaam, a good eye and a lowly soul and a humble spirit belong to the disciple of Abraham, an evil eye and a swelling soul and a haughty spirit to the disciple of Balaam. In the story of Achan that we heard from Joshua chapter 7, Achan confesses to Joshua his sin with these words, I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels and I coveted them and I took them. That is a perfect illustration of an evil eye. And it echoes the original sin of Eve in Genesis 3, where Eve saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and her evil eye caused the first sin. All right, so that's a lot of data. But basically, good eyes and bad eyes are actually very, very important in the Old Testament. And the Talmud reports that when Rabban Yohanan said to the other rabbis, go forth and observe which is the right way to which a man should cleave, he got a bunch of answers. Rabbi Joshua said, a good companion. Rabbi Yose said, a good neighbor. Rabbi Shimon said, foresight. Rabbi Eleazar said, a good heart. And Rabbi Eleazar said, a good eye. He put it right at the top of the list. So that's the rich tradition Jesus is wading into in verse 22. But he takes things much further than any of those rabbis did. He agrees with them as far as they go. We're still on the subject of money here. A person with a bad eye is greedy and stores up treasure only for themselves, while a person with a healthy eye is generous with what they have. But Jesus adds to the teaching of the rabbis by pointing to the blinding effect of greed. He takes the eye metaphor one step further, because our physical eyes are the only source of light to our whole bodies. Our brains themselves live in eternal darkness, entombed within our skulls. Our blood and our bones and our organs never see any light unless we get injured. So our body is entirely lit through this window of our eyes. If our eyes work and we open them to the light, it feels like our whole bodies are full of light. But if our eyes stop taking in light, then it can't come in anywhere else and all that's left is complete darkness. And Jesus translates this dynamic into the area of generosity and greed and says that the greedy person, the one who chases after earthly treasure, has a bad eye which is closed off to the light. And he says that if that happens, there's no other source of light. It can't come in anywhere else. And so how great is the darkness. All this means that the sin of greed may be more than any other sin, hides itself and produces in us real spiritual blindness. The complete inability to see the truth of things as they are. Tim Keller wrote about this. There was a one time in his church that Keller was doing a morning breakfast series on the seven deadly sins. And his wife, Kathy, asked him, are you advertising each time which sin you're going to talk about? And Tim said, yes, we are. And Kathy said, watch what happens When you get to the sin of greed, you're going to see a sharp drop in attendance because nobody thinks they have a problem with the sin of greed. And it was so. Tim noticed that there was a significant drop in attendance for breakfast on the week they talked about greed. And he concluded, why? It's not because they were hostile. It's not that people said, that's a terrible idea. I don't want to hear about greed. No, everybody was just so sure that it wasn't true about them. Greed is the blinding sin. Greed costs us our spiritual sight, and that is the second great cost. But we're still not at the end of listing the cost of earthly treasure. First, it costs us treasure in heaven. Second, it costs us the sight of our eyes. But now third, in verse 24, it also costs us our right to serve God. The first two costs are alarming enough, but this is surely the worst. Jesus concludes no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. That last word in verse 24 is the Greek word mammon, which is is a transliteration of the Aramaic word for money. And it suggests a personified God of unrighteous wealth, mammon. There are lots of other Greek words for money that are used much more frequently in the Bible. This one is a rare word. It's only used four times in the New Testament and always on the lips of Jesus. He says you cannot serve God and mammon. So we've got to see what a stark binary choice this is. All three parts of this short section have dealt with conflicting choices. It's either treasure on earth or treasure in heaven Never both. It's either the good eye of generosity or the bad eye of greed. Never both. And here it's either serve God or serve mammon. Never both. Trying to serve both at the same time is a fool's errand, says Jesus. It simply cannot be done. So then, once again, the choice to serve mammon costs us our right to serve God because we already have a master. And this might be one of the most terrifying things Jesus ever said. Because becoming a servant of mammon sounds as easy as starting up a store of treasure on earth, something that we're all very tempted to do, and then somewhere down the road we fall prey to greed, something that sounds frighteningly easy to do. From there, we're blind to the truth of the world as it is, therefore unable to even see that we have any kind of problem, though in reality we're enslaved to the service of mammon, which excludes any real service of God, and whatever lip service we might pay God in church on a Sunday morning, he will say to us in the end, I never knew you. Mammon was only your real master. And that is frankly terrifying because it could happen to any one of us and we wouldn't have seen it coming due to greed-induced blindness. So friends, how attractive is earthly treasure now? The envelope has come in the mail and it prints in big letters a lot of exciting promises. You could be rich. You can have a ton of treasures that are just yours. Fine things, beautiful things to delight you every day. And you read it and think... That sounds very nice. It does sound very nice, but it comes at a terrible price. Today, we've called up Jesus on the phone and asked him, so what would all that cost me? And he's given us the blunt answer, well, you can take that deal, but it's gonna cost you all your treasure in heaven, the sight of your eyes, and your right to serve God. So, ouch, no thank you. That is some pretty serious small print. That deal turns out to be a real scam, well, the deal that Jesus has on the table for each one of us is so much better. I think most of us have firmly decided to take Jesus' deal instead. A new relationship with God, our maker, adoption into God's family as his own children, bought for us on the cross by the free gift of Jesus' own body and blood, leading to a brand new life that serves God and his kingdom first and only. So the new life of Jesus is a life of simplicity, and not luxury. It's a life of service instead of power, but it comes with the benefits of love instead of loneliness, permanence instead of death, generosity instead of greed, and clear-sightedness instead of blindness. So it all adds up to some costs in the short-term for some really good long-term benefits. And if you're still deciding which deal to take this morning, then I warmly commend to you the kingdom of Jesus as the right choice for everyone. For a limited time only, he's offering complete forgiveness for all past mistakes. Of all the ways that we served Mammon and the other gods, of all the greedy and selfish ways we've treated other people, complete forgiveness and a new heart to love what's good and do what's right. of course the truth is that we're all greedy, selfish, blind people by nature. The problems Jesus raises here are problems that all of us share, and once again they're problems that the cross forgives and the spirit heals. So we leave this lesson with hope and not with despair. But as we live this new life with Jesus, we must turn our backs on greed and run from it with all possible speed. Because notice how this sin more than any other produces blindness. For an example that demonstrates this, uh, last weekend I was at the Florida History Museum downtown with my nieces and nephews, and they have a visiting exhibition there on the transatlantic slave trade. We all know that over the course of more than 300 years, the lives of more than 12 million African people were destroyed by kidnapping and forced transportation to Europe and the Americas. And I thought of William Wilberforce, the English politician who devoted his life and career to making the transport of enslaved people illegal in the British Empire. Wilberforce went to my college in Cambridge. And I saw his huge marble statue every time I went to chapel. He was 28 years old when he first began campaigning against slavery in the British Parliament. And he spoke truth and reason to a room full of apparently sane Apparently Christian and apparently civilized men week after week, year after year, and he was booed, and he was hated, and he was voted down year after year until the Slavery Abolition Act was eventually passed in 1833, 46 years after Wilberforce first began campaigning against the slave trade, and three days before he died. This one project turned into his life's work. How did it take 46 years for civilized men to rule against outrageous evil? The answer is surely here in Matthew chapter 6. Because they had financial interests and because of the blinding effect of greed. The answer is surely here in Matthew 6. It's the same reason it took another 30 years to break the spell of greed in this country and the civil war before the Emancipation Proclamation and more than another entire century and the assassination of a minister of the gospel before the Civil Rights Act passed. And I'm not saying that greed was the only sin in play in these events. Far from it. But surely Jesus is right that greed has a unique effect of blinding people and therefore has the power to turn ordinary men and make them do monstrous things. All the while being blind to even seeing that what they're doing is monstrous. Paul rightly says then that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And all this is troubling, friends, because this nation still really, really loves money. And no less now than it did in Vanderbilt and Rockefeller's time. The 2008 housing market collapse put the greed of Wall Street and the large investment banks on full public display. And since 2008, they have had no accountability and have changed nothing. At the heart of American business today are behemoths like Amazon and Facebook and Google and Apple, companies whose greed knows no bounds, who never say enough, who are always looking for the next part of human relationship that they can monetize and tightening their squeeze on the juicy fruit to extract just a few more drops. And heaven knows there's greed in our churches too. Pastors getting rich off book deals and finding ever more creative ways to profit from the blood of Jesus. Friends, greed is everywhere. Greed is in the water we drink and greed is the enemy of justice. America today has a huge greed problem. Little wonder then that we have a justice problem. What are we going to do? We can't fix it. We're too small to change it. But for our part, we must recognize it and come out from it utterly. Swim against that tide. Realize that the prevailing culture is sick beyond measure, with a sickness that causes blindness bordering on insanity, and that only Jesus can heal it. Only Jesus can remove the scales from our eyes and let the light in by his saving work on the cross. And as we follow him in the new life, here's his daily prescription. We've got to get giving. We've got to get giving. Generosity is the cure because generosity restores eyesight. We remember from earlier in the Sermon on the Mount that the kind of generosity Jesus is looking for is not the full public display kind. It's the kind that's done in secret. Not with a big fanfare, but done so only God can see. And if we want to be sure it's working, we need to set the plow deep. That means giving until it hurts. Giving until it costs us something. Until it really cuts into our ability to store up earthly treasure. we got to hate greed and hate it hard, no compromises, no peace treaties, it's radical generosity that really shows the middle finger to mammon and says, I don't love you, I love my heavenly father and I belong to him. Amen. Amen. So if the world is going to change, friends, it's going to start in the church.